for the ones who first trusted in Christ, that we should be to the praise of His glory. And then he finishes this passage in verse 14, and he says the same thing. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The Greek word for glory is doxa, where we get the word doxology. And this whole passage really is a doxology or a a eulogy. The Greek word for blessing is eulogy, and it's found three times in verse 3. So this is a eulogy or a praise of all that God is doing. And what God started to do, well, you can't even say God started to do anything because God's eternal. God's plans were before the foundation of the world. God doesn't have an a, a opt-out plan. If this doesn't work, I'm going to do this. God has always had a purpose to bring Jew and Gentile together under one corporate body. And the book of Ephesians is really all about this mystery. This mystery that had been hidden in other dispensations that Jew and Gentile would come together in one corporate body called the church. That was the mystery. That was the the big dilemma. That was the theological debate of the first century. If you remember the book of Acts, we just finished the book of Acts. Hopefully you do remember it. Paul would first go where? We who first trusted in Christ, we Jewish people, he always habitually went to the synagogue. As his custom was, he would go into the synagogue and reason Sabbath after Sabbath. When the Jews would debate and discuss and then finally reject their Messiah, Christ then was preached to the Gentiles. And Paul says in this book of Ephesians, if you'll turn over to chapter 2, that he... Paul was a prisoner for the Gentiles. I'm sorry, verse 3, chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for you Gentiles. This is, I'm a prisoner, but on behalf of you Gentiles. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, this, this whole mystery has been made known to me that you may understand also my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, how has been revealed now by the Spirit and the holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. And so Paul would leave the synagogue, and then he would go out into the Gentiles. And this was the first century conundrum, you might say. They didn't argue Calvinism versus Arminianism. That, that's... That, that's totally foreign from Paul's thinking in this passage. And that's sort of where it's come today, though, unfortunately. When Paul and Peter and James and the early church got together at the Jerusalem Council, their whole discussion was, what do we do with Gentile believers? Are they second class? Is this something new that God has just come up with? And James finishes that whole discussion in Acts chapter 15, and he says, Known to God are all his works from the beginning of creation. Why should we now put a yoke on the Gentiles that neither us nor our fathers can bear, 
But just as Peter said, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And this is in agreement with all the Old Testament scripture. And this was a mystery. When, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's not even telling them about the church yet. This is something that the, the, the apostles later learned about. Jesus alludes to it many times. He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. And I'm going to bring them. There's going to be one shepherd. He is talking about the incorporation of the Gentiles here. And at the end of the Gospels, we're starting to see, oh, this is going to go to the nations. It is for all creation. The Gospel is for all people. The Gospel of Mark ends by saying, go and preach to all creatures. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved. The offer is to be universal. And yet it is restricted to those who believe. It is appropriated only by those who have faith in Christ. And Paul now in this beautiful doxology, this beautiful eulogy, blessing and praising the name of God, it's all about his works that were from the foundation of the world, or actually before the foundation of the world, but now they're being manifested in these last times through the preaching of Christ, the gospel. So this passage, to rightly understand it, there's several things that we need to understand to rightly exegete this passage. One, we need to understand the book of Ephesians. It's a book about the corporate body of Christ. That is the book of Ephesians. God is bringing together one body. God is breaking down walls between Jew and Gentile. God is making out of two groups of people one new man. You who were far off, Gentiles, us who were near, Jews, now he has made access by one spirit. We are the body of Christ, and we speak as a mystery, Paul says in chapter 5. And the church is going to be presented to Christ as a glorious bride. So this book of Ephesians is a book of the corporate people of God coming together. So when we see verses where it says God has blessed us with spiritual blessings, God has chosen us to be a part of his people. He's talking about his bride. He's talking about his people. He's talking about his church. Individual selection of Peter and James and Luke, and that's not in Paul's mind. That's not in God's mind. That's not a part of the theology of the book of Ephesians. The second thing to rightly understand this passage of Scripture, it is Christocentric. It is all centered in the person of Christ. Election is not an unconditional election here. Our election is conditioned on those who are in Christ. He's writing to the saints who are in Christ. Look at verse two, 1. To the saints who are at Ephesus, who are the faithful in Christ. Now, the word faithful is an adjective. It's translated as a noun here. You can use adjectives as a noun if it has... without... without the direct article. Let me grab my Greek text here and just uh, and so it's and the faithful. Now this is a the guy's name was Granville Sharp and he's got this called the, it's the Granville Sharp Rule of Grammar and and I can't explain all why why it's, it's named after this guy but anyway. The rule of grammar is this. When you've got a direct object and one noun, and you've got the word chi, or the Greek word and, connecting another noun following it, it's the one and same group of people. So he's writing, first of all, 
to the sanctified ones, the ones who are set apart. And he says though that same group of people are the faithful ones. Another way of translating that would be the ones who are believers. He's writing to the ones who are believers who are in Christ. Now, that little phrase, the ones who are in Christ, is not found in your translation, but that's the idea of the phrase in Christ, the faithful in Christ. I'm writing to the faithful who are in Christ. Um, let me just uh, give it to you uh, in the, in the, the NASB, the, the New American Standard. Um, it says, in the New American Standard, he says, I'm writing to the faithful ones, and it's in the, forgive me for using some technical terms, there's, in, in the original language, there are nouns that can be used in different cases, and you use the locative case to show location, where something is found metaphorically. You use another case ending if that is the object of your faith. Let's say I'm putting my faith in this church. I'm trusting in who you are and, and what you're doing. You are not the object of my faith. So when Paul's writing here, he says, I am writing to the faithful ones who are in Christ. It's not that he's saying I'm writing to ones whose object of their faith is Christ. I don't know if I'm making any sense at all to you, but there's a, there's a slight difference there. It's not that Christ is the object of their faith. Now, that is true, but that's not what Paul is emphasizing. What he is emphasizing is that they are in this body of people who are called in Christ. That's the emphasis. They are the believing ones who are in Christ. And as you saw, as I read through this passage, the words in Christ, in whom, in him, in him we have redemption, in him we have every spiritual blessing, in him we are chosen, in him you trusted, in him you believed. So the condition for all of these things are Christocentric. The third thing that we need to understand when we're rightly discerning this passage is what is the meaning of predestination? The word predestined means a plan that has already been arranged ahead of time. It does not mean that God has predetermined who is going to be in Christ. It does not mean that God has predetermined who is going to be reprobated. It means that God has predestined where you are going to end up and what your life is going to look like. Now, if I go down to Salt Lake City and I get on an airplane and that airplane has already been predestined to land in Chicago, that is exactly where I'm going to land when I get off that plane. If I go to, down to Salt Lake and I get into another plane that's predestined to land in Las Vegas, that's where I'm going to end up. And what Paul is saying here through predestination, he's predestined you to be holy and to be blameless. Those who are in Christ, God has already predestined, predetermined that you are going to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, Those whom he foreknew, 
And foreknew there, we've already looked at this passage, so I'm not going to go through it in great detail. Foreknew means that God had a relationship with these people already in the past. The ones that he had a relationship, Paul uses that in Acts chapter 26. He says, those who foreknew me, if they would testify right now, they would tell you what kind of person I was in the past. Those people who had a relationship with me. Paul uses the same expression in Romans chapter 10. God has not cast away the people whom he foreknew, the ones that he had a relationship, those that God had a relationship with. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's like you got on the airplane and now you are heading to a destination that God has already predetermined. Now, God may take you there willingly or God may take you there kickingly, but one way God is going to conform you to like Christ. It doesn't mean that God is going to control you like a robot. It doesn't mean that God's going to manipulate you. It doesn't mean that no longer you have a self-will to make bad choices. God will allow you to do that. But you know what God has done? He has predestined to make you look like Jesus. And so he's going to use some of those bad choices as a chastisement in your life to correct you and to make you more like his son. That's what predestined means in this passage of Scripture. So those are the things that we need to understand. So the address is to the saints who are the ones who are found in Christ. The emphasis is not on the object of their faith, but rather where they are spiritually incorporated into. I'm writing to the faithful ones who are in Christ, the believing ones, the ones who have trusted, put their faith in Christ. This is who he's addressing in this passage. The sense of this is the believing ones who are spiritually placed into the body. When Paul writes this, he's writing it as a Hebrew blessing. This is called in the Hebrew a baraka, the, the, the blessing to bend the knee, to worship. And he says, we need to bend the knee, we need to praise, we need to bless the name of God because of who he is. And notice in the, the Hebrew style of writing, and, and secondly, I want to point out that this is written from an Eastern, a Hebrew's mindset. The Hebrews did not think individually. They did not think me and mine, and this is, God does this just for me. The Hebrews always thought corporately. This, was a, this is a Jewish way of thinking, and this is a a Eastern book. This is not a Western book. As Western thinkers, we think, oh, it's about me. I'm an individual. And, and, and God, when he died on the cross, he just died for me. And, and those things are true. Yes, he did. But, but that's not the, the mindset of, of an of a Asian or a Hebrew writer. He's saying, blessed is God who has blessed us. This is this is his thinking. This is his culture. And he's saying, God is doing this for all of us, Jew and Gentile. And he needs to be praised because he's given us every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. This is where Christ is right now. This is where Christ is found in the heavenly realms. Let's look at verse one and verse tw- or chapter 1 and verse 20. This is where our spiritual blessings are found. Verse 19, Paul is praying that we would know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's the the exclusion. It's those who believed according to the work of his mighty power, which he worked, look at this little phrase, he worked it in Christ. Paul wants us to understand the mighty power that he's doing in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is so prolific in the book of Ephesians. It's It's Christocentric everywhere. Now, when did he do this? 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at right hand in his heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This is where you and I are now seated with Christ. And Paul wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe who are in Christ. Blessed be God, because every spiritual blessing, it's not physical blessings, it's not monetary blessings, it's not political blessings. God gives you and I spiritual blessings. And then he enumerates on what those spiritual blessings are. We have been chosen to be holy, to be blameless. Another spiritual blessing is we are adopted into his family. Another spiritual blessing, we have been redeemed. Another spiritual blessing, all sins are forgiven. Another spiritual blessing, we are going to manifest to all the principalities and powers the wonderful magnitude of God's glorious grace. And all of those things are found nowhere else other than in Christ. Blessed be God, who's brought all these spiritual blessings to us for those who are in Christ. Spiritual blessings in Christ. This last cause governs the entire phrase. Look at verse 3. Blessed be God, who has blessed us with spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I want to look at one other place where heavenly blessings are, are found in Christ. So go over to Ephesians. We want to stick with the book of Ephesians and see what Paul is getting at here when he says in heavenly places, in heavenly realms. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Here's one of the spiritual blessings that are now in heavenly places. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we have been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. And look at this phrase, in Christ Jesus. It's Christocentric. Everything is in Christ Jesus. We, so our spiritual blessings, part of those spiritual blessings is the fact that we are not isolated entities. Like I said before, this is a Western idea, Western culture. We are sharing in the communion of Christ. We are incorporated into Christ by virtue of believing in the one, Jesus. That's where spiritual blessings are found. Not because of me individually, but because I am unified now with Christ and a part of the body of Christ. The spiritual blessings in Christ, the last clause, sort of governs the entire phrase of verse 3. The emphasis is not on the individuals. We are chosen in Christ. The next blessing... Verse 4, just as he chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blame without him before, before him in love. The emphasis of this verse isn't before the foundation of the world. The emphasis of this verse is a little infinitive. The main verb of this entire sentence is the word chose. Verse 4 says, just as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, and here's the infinitive, and it's translated in your translations and mine, that we might be holy, but it's to be holy and blameless before him in love. So the emphasis of this verse is that God has chosen us for a purpose. Not that God has chosen me individually, or that God has chosen this guy over here and he excluded this guy. 
What Paul is saying, the purpose of election is that we might be holy. That is why God is selecting. That is why God is choosing. God has the sovereign right to elect. It is his prerogative. But notice that it's plural. He chose us. The context of us in the book of, Gen- of, of, of Ephesians is clearly talking about the body of Christ. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Go over to chapter 2, and you'll see this. As you read through the book of, of Ephesians, it's all about us. It's all about we. It's all about this group. God elected. God in his eternity past said, I am going to choose to save Jew and Gentile. And that is a part of the spiritual blessing. But chapter 2, in verses uh, 11 through 19, and I'm just going to read it, and you will see how he's talking about the bringing us all together. Therefore, remember that you, Gentiles, were Gentiles of the flesh. You were called uncircumcised by what is called circumcision. The Jews called you guys outsiders, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in, look at the phrase again, but now in Christ Jesus. That is his emphasis. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our corporate. It's Jesus. He is our, the corporate idea. Not just my peace and your peace. No, it's our peace who has done made both one, one corporate body. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law and commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man. That is the church, thus making peace that we, that he might reconcile them both to God. Where is it at? In one body through the cross, thereby putting death to enmity. He came and preached in peace to you who were far off. That's talking about the Gentile. To those who were near. That's talking about the Jew. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens. You're a part of this Jewish corporate church. It's Jew and Gentile, saints and members of the household of God. So when he says that God from the foundation of the world chose us, it's the corporate people of God. God has chosen before the foundation of the world that he is going to call people out. This call is universal, but it's only to those who are in Christ. If we went over to chapter 3, we could see it again. And just just for the sake of emphasis, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Just turn over to to, to chapter 3. And verses 5 through 6, I think I've already read this, so we're not going to read 5 and 6 again. But let's just read verse, uh, verse 9 through 10 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. To make all see what the fellowship of the mystery from the beginning of the ages. Before the creation of the world, this mystery was hidden. That God was going to choose out a people to be holy, to be blameless, and to be before him in love. This was the beginning of the ages. It has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent now the manifold wisdom of God might be known, and here it is, by what? By the church. The corporate idea is found everywhere in the book of Ephesians. We are chosen in 
him. That little phrase is so important in this chapter, found 10 times in 13 verses. Christ is the elect one through whom all people can be saved. He is the elect one par excellent. Christ is the elect one. God chose us in the person of Christ. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth justice to the Gentiles. I, the Lord, have called him, Jesus, in righteousness, and I will hold his hand, and I will keep him, and I will give the elect one as a covenant to the people for a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from their prison, and to them that sit in darkness, and to them who are in the prison house. Jesus Christ is the elect one from the foundation of the world. Jesus is the chosen one in eternity past. You and I did not exist in eternity past. Christ was the only one there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in eternity past, God from the foundation of the world says, I'm going to choose out my people and I'm going to place them in Christ by faith alone. That, this choice to save in Christ was before the foundation of the world. Christ is the only one, like I said, who existed before the foundation of the world. John chapter 17 and verse 4, Jesus said this, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which you gave me, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Christ was there before the foundation of the world, and God the Father said, I am going to call out people. Before the foundation of the world, before man even sinned, before Adam ever fell, before Abraham ever existed, God said, I am going to do something mysterious, so wonderful. I'm going to bring all people together. I'm going to consummate everything in the person of Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times... God said from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, I'm going to choose out my people who are in Christ, the ones who are the believing ones, who are trusting in Jesus. And he says, in verse 10, he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. This was God's plan for you and I before the foundation of the world, to save us. 1 Peter 1.20 is the only other time that this phrase, before the foundation of the world, is used identically as it is here. And it talks about Jesus as a lamb without spot. This is 1 Peter 1.19 and 20. Without spot or without blemish, who verily or truly was foreordained, when? Before the foundation of the world. Jesus was foreordained. Before the foundation of the world, God was choosing to save people in Christ before the foundation of the world. Jesus was foreordained. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. But it goes on to say that in these last times, he was manifested for you who through him do believe in God. Now it's through him we believe in God and are placed in Christ. The purpose of this choice, 
The purpose of this choice is explicitly clear, and that is that we might be holy and blameless before Him in love. The purpose of election is nearly overlooked today in the discussion, and yet it is the central point of this verb, the infinitive, to be, He chose us to be holy. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the purpose, the complement of that verb is to be holy. The purpose of that verb to choose is to be blameless. And this is why God has chosen us, His people, His corporate body. And we are chosen in Christ. And this is before the foundation of the world. God already had this plan in, in existence. And that God wanted us to be holy. Holy expresses the positive quality of being set apart for God. God said, I want my people, my church, to be set apart. And then he also says, I want them to be blameless. This is the negative side. The positive side is separated unto God. That's the positive aspect of, this, of, our, of our reason to be chosen. And then the, the negative side of it is expressed by the word blameless. Now, what does God want to do with his body? The body of Christ, the church, is his bride. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. This is God's plan for his people. Ephesians 5, 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That he, this has got the... Uh, this is capitalized because it's talking about Jesus here, that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her. This is the corporate body, the people of Jesus. And how is he going to do it? With the washing of the water by the word. And the, 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 the purpose is that he might present her, the body of Christ, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such things, that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the purpose for God's election. That he might present himself a glorious church that's holy and blameless. Now how and when are we placed in him? That, that's got to be a crucial question for every one of us this morning. So if, if it's talking about corporate election, it's talking about the body of Christ, that God had this plan before the ages to save both Jew and Gentile, to bring them together in one body... And God had this plan always in eternity past. And God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be blameless. How do I find myself in Christ? If the condition is to be in Christ, this passage actually tells us explicitly how and when this happens. So if you look at verse... Um, uh, verse 13, we'll, we'll look at that. But I, I, I want to just sort of give the two options here for you and, and kind of let you see yourself which one fits the context, which one fits the passage, which one fits the mind of God and what God is doing throughout Scripture. So one, God arbitrarily or mysteriously chose individuals. That's one of the possibilities of waiting to look at this passage. That God just mysteriously said, I'm going to pick this individual and I'm not going to pick this individual for salvation. I'm going to pick this one for perdition. I'm going to pick this one for reprobation. Just arbitrarily or mysteriously, before 
they ever existed, before they ever did any right or before they ever did any wrong. Because we are spiritually chosen in a... And they would say that God had to pick us before we were ever born. God said, I'm going to save this person mysteriously. We, we don't know why, but, but God as sovereign has the right to do that. But we are born in a corpse-like state. This is one of the, the possibilities of understanding this passage. So God has to choose us before we're ever born. Because we don't have the ability to ever come to God. We don't have the ability to respond to the gospel because we are in a corpse-like state. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our sin. Now, this is one of the arguments. Um, I, I'll explain that verse when we get to it, Ephesians 2, 1, what that means to be dead in Christ. But that's where they would say that, and that we first have to be regenerated. We, we are so lost that, that, that we can't even come to God, we can't even acknowledge God. And so God had to choose us before we were born. And then God has to give us faith in order to believe because we don't want to believe in God. So God irresistibly and effectually makes us alive because we were like a corpse and then he gives us the faith to believe in him and then God chooses another person. You're never going to have a chance to believe. I've reprobated you before you're ever born and yet you're responsible somehow, responsible for sin that... You never committed before you were born, but yet I'm going to hold you accountable to that. That just does not seem like the God of the Bible. In fact, we find so many passages that teach just the opposite. The man who sins shall die. God has no pleasure in the death of him who dies, but turn and live. And, and then the, this, this choice is sort of conflated into an idea that, that you choose because that's what you want to choose. But they forget, they, they, they don't tell you that God is the one who's ordained your choosing. And so it seems like they escape that, 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 that contradiction, but it's, it's just mere semantics. It's called compatibilism. And compatibilism says that, that you're a, a lion and you're going to choose to eat meat. And if I give you meat, you're just going to choose meat because that's what you are. And, and you... But they forget that, that the DNA has been programmed. And so they're really saying that man is nothing more than an animal. And that man has been programmed to always hate God and, oh, and never be able to understand the gospel and never choose him. And God is going to then consign that person to judgment and hell when they didn't hear God calling them. And yet they're responsible for what they did not hear. God showed them, but they were blind. And God says, you are responsible for what I showed you, but I made you blind. Now, that, I'm oversimplifying it. But that is, in essence, the doctrine of Reformed theology. And, I, and, I, I, and it may be grotesquely simple, but in the bottom analysis, that's really what it is. Now, that is not the, the Bible, biblical God that I see. And I don't see that in this passage being taught. But what I see is that the Bible teaches that man has the capability, even in his fallen state, to confess that he needs a Savior. The prodigal son did not have the ability to save himself, but the prodigal son had the ability to come home and say, Dad, I don't deserve to be one of your children. John chapter 5 and verse 40 says, You do not come to me that you might have life. Notice the order. 
Life doesn't come first. And the other life comes first and then you come to him. Jesus says, you come to me that you might find life. John's gospel was written. These miracles were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you will have life in his name. The order of salutus is not faith and then believing. It's believing. It's faith and then, then having life. And so um, I think the Bible is, is clear that, that, that God has given us sufficient means that every one of us is without excuse. I mean, what, what better excuse could you have if you stood before God and God said, you are reprobated to hell. And you say, hold on a minute, God. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear. I couldn't understand. And God would say, you know what? I've already chosen you for hell before you were born, and I've done it for my glory. You've got every excuse. It would be like me being a teacher and saying, come in class, and I'm going to give a test today. But I put blindfold on half my class. And I put every note here on the board. Now, I said, now, everybody up here, read it. And half the class has got blindfolds. And then I'm going to give a lecture, and I'm going to say, you're going to be answering questions that I give in my lecture, but I'm going to, half the class, I'm going to put earmuffs on so you can't hear what I'm saying. Now at the end of the class, I'm going to give a test. Half of you pass and half of you fail. And I'm going to say to my students that fail, I said, this brings me glory as a wonderful teacher. That, that's in essence what, what this, this doctrine would be teaching. Now, but I, I believe that the Bible teaches us that, that God has given us every sufficient means to come to him and that we are genuinely responsible and we are genuinely without excuse. Romans chapter 1 says that creation is a display of God's eternal power and his Godhead so that we are without excuse. Everybody can look at creation and say, there is an all-powerful, omnipotent, almighty God. Second thing, Romans chapter 2 says, You are inexcusable, O man, whoever judges another, for when you judge another, you do the same thing. He says, your conscience will one day either excuse you or excuse you before God. You will stand before God. God has given everybody sufficient light within themselves. We are created in the image of God. It tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the true light that came into the world that lights every single man. John chapter 1 verse 5 says that John was sent forth in order that he might be salvations to every one of us. The Bible is explicitly clear. All the passages that talk about whosoever will, let him come to the water of life and drink freely. Jesus said, if you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus said, I am the living bread. Whoever eats of me will never hunger. John chapter uh, 1 and verse 13, it says, And as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, even those who believe on his name. Salvation that brings, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Titus 2.11. The passages are found everywhere. First uh, Timothy chapter 2. It says that, that Jesus Christ is the ransom for all men. And God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Another verse in First Peter, or First Timothy, it says this, that God is not willing or, or, or that, that we are to pray for authorities and all and rulers 
that we might live a quiet and a peaceable life, for this is good and acceptable in God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, to come in the knowledge of the truth. Now, either we have to do some kind of semantic gymnastics that those verses really don't mean what they mean, and you have to come up with some kind of, of, of double talk almost and say, well, those aren't really a call for salvation. Those are general calls. God wants, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Well, you have to come up with unbiblical terms and say, well, that's a, a general call. God, that's not effective grace. That's, that's a, a general grace. It's, it's God's general goodness. Just, if you just understand that, that Christ before the foundation of the world, said, I am going to save all people who are in me, it eliminates all of this confusion. And this is what Paul is saying, and this is who he is writing to. He's writing to Jew and Gentile who don't understand this corporate church that was a mystery to them, and they're wondering about how do we treat our Gentile brother, and he says, all those walls of separation have been abolished. I am creating in one new man, and this is a mystery that's been hidden from the foundation of the world, and now I want you to understand it, my church at Ephesus. I think God has given us sufficient means by the gospel to bring everyone to salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the word of God, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Herein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I believe that the scripture is powerful enough to bring people to salvation. Creation is enough to convict us. Our conscience is enough to convict us. The gospel is powerful enough to persuade us. We are born again, it says in 1 Peter, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed, by the word of God that lives and abides forever. The word of God is quick, it's living, it's powerful, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I believe that the gospel is the power of God and it brings people to conviction. Thirdly, that's thirdly, number four, we have the Holy Spirit. So I don't believe, I, there's no way in my mind that I say that people can just come to faith on their own without the help of God. That, that, that's not what the Bible teaches either. It, it, don't, don't, allow, don't be put in that camp either, that, that we're smart enough to figure all this out. No, we're not. We're, we're, we're enemies of God. We're alienated from God. We're rebels in, from God. But God has given all these things that we can humble ourselves. You can't be effectually humbled, by the way. You, you try to do that to your kids, I, you're, you're going to effectually be sorry for what you did. And I'm going to spank you until you are. It doesn't work. You have got to humble yourself. So the notion of effectually or irresistibly brought to contrition, that's a contradiction. God wants us through the power of our conscience, through creation, through the wonderful message of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, yes, I am a sinner and I need Jesus. This passage tells us exactly how God does it. So if you will just turn with me in this passage um, down to Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 13, uh, we'll start at 12 and 13. Well, let's, let's go back to verse 11. Verse 11 says, In him, in him we also obtain an inheritance. You see, this inheritance, this inheritance was already 
a part of your spiritual blessings before the foundation of the world. God said, I have got this incredible blessing before the foundation of the world. This is not an afterthought. But notice that it's in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. And for those who are in him, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in the counsel of his will. I'm going I'm to talk about, I don't, I, I'm going to a long sermon this morning, forgive me for that. But this is, this is something that, that's crucial for us to understand as, as Christians. That predestination, God is predestined from, let, let me just give you a quick illustration. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 18, you can look at it after church. But in Jeremiah chapter 18, he says, go down to the potter's house, and I want to see you a pic, see, I'm going to paint out a picture of predestination for you. The potter, God is sovereign. I am not taking God off of his throne, that God is absolutely sovereign. God does whatever he wills, however he wants to do it. And God has willed to give us free creatures, and God has predestined what our choices are going to end up being. And he says, go down to the potter's house. The potter's making a pot. It's marred in his hand. He says, okay, I'm going to make a different one. Now, here's the illustration, Jeremiah. I want you to get this. I, God, is the potter. I have the right. When I say to this potter, I want to make you like this, and if that, that, that nation and that people says, no, I'm not going to do that, God can then predestine it for something else. And God says, I'm going to predestine blessings on that person, and that person says, I don't want it. God says, okay, I'm going to take that away from you. When you decide to follow Jesus, God predestines you to be holy. When, God, when you reject the gospel and you reject everything that Christ has done for you, God has predetermined and predestined eternal reprobation and eternity separated from God in hell. And that's the illustration that Jeremiah was giving, and that's the point of predestination. But now, when does God put us in Christ? That's the crucial question that we need to answer. And verse 13 is going to tell us, In Him also you trusted. And look at the word here, after. This tells us when. In whom? You also trusted after. It's an aorist participle. This has to happen first. It's after you heard the word of truth. Now, what is the word of truth? It's the gospel of your salvation. In whom? In Christ. Notice this is past tense. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When were you sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? When did God, the Holy Spirit, seal you into the body of Christ? It's after you heard the truth of the gospel, and it's when you believed. This passage couldn't be more clear. Lastly, I just want to say that a gift that is received and embraced by faith is not a work. I've heard this over and over and over again, that if you have to believe, well, that's a work that you can boast on. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible never contrasts faith and works. Oh, I'm sorry. The Bible always contrasts faith and works. It never calls faith a work. In fact, those things are diametrically opposed, faith and works. Lastly, a gift does not need to be given irresistibly or effectually to make it a gift so that I don't boast about it. I had a good brother, and he called me up to the front of the church, and he had an envelope in his hand. And he said, Patrick, I want you to have this. This is a gift. Now, he could have forced me to take that. 
against my will. And I would have never appreciated that. He could have coerced me. And now he says, okay, now that I've forced you to take it, now it's really a gift. I think just the opposite is true. The fact that I willingly and humbly received that from him made it a gift, and it didn't make it a coercion, coercive act. So a gift doesn't have to be effectually or irresistibly given in order for it to be a gift. If this view is correct, it must be taught that the vast majority of the human race was passed over before they were born, condemned to eternity in hell for sin that they never had committed before the foundations of the world because they weren't alive yet, the Bible teaches that we are generally responsible, not merely a wordplay. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity for his father, neither the father bear the iniquity for the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. The wickedness shall be upon the wicked and shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from his sin that he has committed and keep all my statutes and do which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All the transgressions that he's committed, they shall not they, they, uh, they, they shall be forgiven, for, for, forgiven. They will not be mentioned. In his righteousness that he's done, he shall live. He sh- have, my, does my, have I any pleasure at all in the wicked that he should die, saith the Lord, and not that he should turn and live? Ezekiel 18.31, Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death that he who dies. Wherefore, turn and live. I don't have time really to, to speak on the rest of this passage, so I'm going to leave it where, right here where I'm at. But I just want us to see this morning as we go through this passage and look at why God is to be blessed. Why is God to be praised? God is to be praised because every spiritual blessing, everything that you need spiritually was found in Christ. That God has chosen us. And yes, it does include individuals. Of course it includes individuals. But those individuals are included when we believe, after we heard the truth of the gospel. And God has chosen you and I to be conformed to the image of His Son. That God is to be praised and be blessed because one day I'm going to look just like Jesus. God has predestined us to adoption. Everyone who comes to Him is made His Son. And He is to be praised and He is to be blessed. He is to be praised and blessed because we have been redeemed through His blood. We have the forgiveness of his sins. This riches of grace has been lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. And all of God's fullness, all of His dispensation of time has been completed for you and I in Christ. All things have been brought together. So God is to be praised for His glorious grace. Father, God... Thank you so much for your infinite wisdom that, God, before the foundations of the world were ever formed, God, that you knew that you were going to send Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on our behalf, you were going to condemn sin so that all the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Thank you, Father, for your infinite wisdom, this mystery that you have now made known to us. Thank you that your church, your corporate body, 
is going to be presented to you as a holy, glorious, spotless church without wrinkle. And this was your infinite plan, Father. Thank you, God, that there is no boasting. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close, I just want to share one more verse with you. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says that God was in Christ. Just start reading the Bible. Look for that phrase, what God was doing in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And those who have been reconciled have been committed the ministry of reconciliation. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. God was in Christ, the foundation of the world, reconciling us to himself. Grace that is greater than all of our sin.